The Tom Woods Show, episode 1195. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, we spend one-third of our lives asleep, so it's important to be comfortable. And the Woods family has just jumped on board the Casper Mattress bandwagon. Join me by taking $50 off select mattresses at casper.com slash woods. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here, talking to Dan McCarthy today, editor-at-large of The American Conservative. He's now editor of Modern Age, a conservative review, which is a periodical that's been around quite some time, and uh, we'll probably have a moment to say something about that. He worked as the Internet Communications Coordinator of the Ron Paul 2008 presidential campaign. He's very widely published, and very recently he wrote an article called How Donald Trump Eclipsed the libertarian moment. He wrote that for The Spectator. And I want to talk to him about that. If that's really true, how how did that happen and what can be done about it? So I'm glad to welcome him back to the show today. Now, of course, I do want to make my uh, reminder to you folks to check out my friends at Free Talk Live. They are doing a very important work on terrestrial radio, reaching a lot of people who wouldn't really seek out libertarian podcasts but who listen to their regular radio stations and stumble upon Free Talk Live. And it's a bunch of libertarians taking calls and answering questions, and it's never boring. I've never heard anybody say, I'm so bored listening to Free Talk Live. So they're doing a great job, and I think it might be something you would enjoy. So check them out at listen.freetalklive.com. That is the podcast version, listen.freetalklive.com. All right, let's welcome Dan McCarthy to the show. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. You have an article in The Spectator, which is very interesting and I think will be interesting to the folks listening. And I, anytime you write something, I want to talk about it. But this particular piece I thought is really food for thought. And it may not be what libertarians and a libertarian audience will want to hear. But, you know, we don't shy away from telling other people what they don't want to hear. So it might be useful for us to listen to what you have to say. Your thesis is that when Trump came along, he basically sucked the energy out of the so-called libertarian moment, and that what we're actually seeing now is quite a startling reversal of fortune when we look back at the energy of the Ron Paul campaigns to see what what there is in its place now is, uh, well, I mean, even, even some people who thought, sure, there's going to be some retrenchment without Ron Paul around might think, wow, I didn't think it would be quite like this, and that all the energy would be transferred to another movement. Well, that's right. You've seen that, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, it looked like uh, libertarians would have a chance to maybe keep Mark Sanford uh, in the U.S. Congress and to keep uh, and to uh, nominate uh, in Virginia for the uh, U.S. Senate a guy by the name of Nick Freitas, who seemed to be, you know, fairly libertarian, leaning for a Republican. And uh, Mark Sanford lost his primary. Freitas um also lost his primary. And in both cases, uh, the candidates, uh, these libertarian-leaning Republicans, were seen as being insufficiently pro-Trump by primary voters. Uh, and Trump himself you know, came out and uh, was very critical of Mark Sanford. So, uh, you know, the, the liberty movement, the uh, freedom movement, whatever one wants to call it, um, had had some significant successes uh, you know, within the past decade, uh, if you look at, you know, after Ron Paul's first run for op- for um, the presidency as a Republican in 2008, uh, you had this sort of uh, groundswell 
of libertarian-leaning Republican candidates. You had people like Justin Amash and Thomas Massey get into the U.S. House, and of course you had Rand Paul get elected to the U.S. Senate. Uh, but since then, the tide seems to have uh, gone out again, and uh, this year has been off to a very bad start for libertarian-leaning Republicans. Well, let, let me just think about the enthusiasm level. Trump had a very high enthusiasm level, but it doesn't seem to be the same demographic that was enthusiastic for Ron Paul. So it's not necessarily that those people just shifted over to Trump. I mean, you know, a handful of them did, but I don't think most of them did. So is it right to say that Trump did this or could it just be the lack of a viable libertarian alternative did this? Well, you know, I'd say that most uh, Republican grassroots and conservative-leaning grassroots, however one wants to define that, um, you know, they weren't necessarily uh, libertarians. They weren't necessarily Trump-style nationalists either. Uh, there's a lot of voters out there on the you know political right, broadly defined, who are kind of waiting for someone to come along and to give them uh, clarify their philosophy and clarify the battles that need to be fought right now. So it's not the case that necessarily that uh, Ron Paul voters switched over en masse to become uh, Donald Trump voters or anything like that. It's rather that the kind of voters who were not necessarily uh, aligned with anything but who were hungry for a, a powerful and polarizing message, um, who were willing to listen to someone like Ron Paul back in 20, 2008 and 2012, uh, I think uh, uh, those voters and a large number of others – uh, wound up being very excited by what they heard from uh, Donald Trump in 2016 and have continued to hear from him. And I think the reason for that is simply that Donald Trump in 2016 was by far the most anti-establishment Republican candidate. He was someone who you know, was genuinely exciting to grassroots voters because he seemed like a guy who was coming along and was going to completely sweep away, uh, drain the swamp, of course, was the phrase he used, but sweep away uh, so much of what it was that Americans had come to find extremely frustrating about their government in Washington. Now, you say in this piece that Rand Paul ran a campaign that a pundit writing about him would easily have been able to distinguish from that of, say, a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio. But when you're looking at Republican primary voters, not to say these aren't necessarily intelligent people, but a lot of them are people who, who don't specialize in observing politics, and they just, in their spare time, catch a glimpse of one or the other. And it's not clear that the distinctions that a pundit might observe are going to be evident to the average voter. And Rand, for all his distinguishing factors, was not – and it was, seems like, a, as you say in your piece, it was a deliberate strategy to distinguish him a bit, but not all that much. And, and I think that was a strategy to try to appeal better to the Republican base. The trouble is the Republican base would then say – well, why don't I just go with Ted Cruz then? Because at least he's not wacky on foreign policy or at least unreliable on foreign policy. Yeah, I've heard Rand's objections that he would do this or that intervention, but I'm not sure I believe it. So my question is, at the time, did you, because you now look at this and you say, that turns out to have been a mistake. And maybe, maybe specialists at the time couldn't have known that was a mistake because it seemed like the sensible thing to do from the point of view of just strategic politics. But then when Donald Trump changed all the rules, we realized that maybe that was an out-of-date strategy. At the time, I'm just curious, did you favor Rand's approach to campaigning? Up to a point. But, you know, uh, I have this memory, and I now can't recall whether it was early, uh, you know, sort of in the 2012 cycle uh, with Ron Paul 
or in the 2016 cycle with Rand. I, I was thinking it was Rand, but now I kind of halfway think it may have been with Ron Paul's second campaign. But I remember getting a piece of uh, campaign literature right at the beginning of the cycle uh, from one of the polls where the entire piece of uh, you know campaign literature was all about uh, term limits for Congress. Oh my now, gosh, this was, I'm falling asleep already. <laughs> term limits was, you know, one of the dorkiest ideas of, uh, you know, the 1994 so-called Newt Gingrich revolution. And it didn't really go anywhere. And you can make a case for term limits, sure, but you can also make a case against them, right? Because what it winds up doing is actually weakening Congress and, and Congress people in particular relative to their own staff who stay in Congress and become, you know, sort of experts and learn how to manipulate their congressmen. Uh, and also relative to the executive branch, which tends to also have people who kind of rotate in from time to time. But in any case, I mean, just term limits, why on earth was this the thing that any libertarian-leaning Republican would choose to focus on? Um so whether or not that was actually Rand, and I have this horrible feeling now that it may actually have been a, a piece of uh, 2012 Ron Paul literature. But in any case, I mean, you see this um, sort of uh, weakening of the uh, Ron Paul revolution, the Ron Paul insurgency that got started in 2008. And just gradually it becomes more and more uh, a kind of, yes, we're Republicans, we're just like all the other Republicans, but we're slightly different. You know, we're going to cut taxes a bit more. We're going to, you know, um, take down regulations a bit more. And, uh, you know, and we're really serious about term limits this time, guys. You know, Newt Gingrich may be running for office again, but, you know, you can't trust him, but we'll do the term limit stuff. Uh, it's just what, you know, uh, political consultants think is uh, a nice kind of middle of the road way of getting conservative voters. And of course, that's not the approach that Ron Paul personally took. Ron Paul, you know, was always out there challenging voters. He was saying things that shocked people about, uh, you know, foreign policy in particular when he confronted Giuliani in South Carolina in 2007, for example. Uh, and um, and Donald Trump did the same thing. Donald Trump also went to South Carolina and, you know, blamed the Bush family, the Bush dynasty for the Iraq war, said it was a disaster. And these kinds of really, you know, confrontational uh, approaches to politics that you saw with Ron Paul and then with Donald Trump turned out to be much, much more successful than, you know, dredging up term limits again from 1994 and trying to, uh, you know, basically be an ordinary generic Republican, only a little bit more of a generic Republican than the others. I still recall a conversation you and I had where we were doing a post-mortem on the Ron Paul presidential campaign. I don't know which one it was, but you were saying to me that, you know, regardless of how, you know, what failings the campaign staff may have had, the fundamental problem that Ron is coming up with uh, against is that Republican primary voters are turning on their televisions and they have a pre-existing set of expectations of what should be coming out of the mouth of the person they're going to vote for. And it's great that Ron generates a lot of energy among a lot of new people for the things he says. But he's not – it turns out that the people who are just uttering platitudes about America and limited government and our future are actually speaking and singing from the hymn book of these people. And Ron isn't. And so they don't vote for him. And that – I mean am I remembering that conversation more or less correctly? You know, I don't remember myself, but I will say, I mean, obviously there are a lot of, you know, just habitual Republican voters, the sort of people who, you know, voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 or voted for John McCain in 2008. Uh, I think, you know, Ron Paul did pretty much everything that it was possible for him to do uh, with a very sort of uncompromising, uh, you know, pro-liberty constitutionalist message. And um, I don't, you know, I don't think, you know, there was 
much of anything that Ron Paul could have done that would have dramatically uh, changed uh, the results of either of his runs in 2008 or in 2012, um, which, you know, it does raise an important point. I mean, even aside from the fact that, you know, a lot of voters have pretty conventional ideas, uh, even the voters who have, you know, a more sort of drain the swamp and uh, sort of uh, throw the bums out of office approach are not necessarily uh, wanting to drain the swamp or throw the bums out simply because they have libertarian instincts. I think Murray Rothbard was actually very correct when he talked about the need for a kind of um, libertarian populism wasn't really his word, but he certainly looked at the populist elements of the Pat Buchanan campaign in the 1990s. And he said, um, you know, this is something that libertarians need to understand. They need to figure out why middle Americans really hate the way their government has 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 uh, developed, but not just their government. They also hate the way our, our popular culture has developed. They hate the way kind of, uh, you know, cultural elites have been uh, depicting, uh, you know, their sort of lower class citizens or the citizens who are, you know, sort of politically unfashionable and politically incorrect. And Rothbard was, you know, I think much more uh, correct about how to uh, go after those voters than I think, uh, you know, anyone who could have, you know, sort of advised a, uh, a libertarian-leaning campaign. Um, the professionals don't think about this stuff, but Murray Rothbard did. I remember in one of the debates, Rand interrupted. I mean, if you're going to interrupt, better be really good. He interrupted to point out that Trump, alone on that stage, refused to say whether he would endorse the nominee. Now, I think later on he did pledge that he would endorse the nominee under tremendous pressure. But he wouldn't make that pledge, and Rand interrupted to say, look, everybody, you see, he won't pledge to support our nominee. Why was that actually ineffective, do you think? It's just not – I mean, if, if, if you're up there on the stage and your whole point is that you know there's a reason you're running, that you're the only person who can defeat Hillary Clinton, for example, that you're the only person who represents uh, whatever uh, true version of conservatism you might be up there to um, – present, whether it's, you know, libertarian, whether it's constitutionalist or something else, neoconservative, whatever. But if you're, if you're willing to say that, like, anyone on stage uh, can do the job just as well as you can, I think it really undercuts uh, your sales point. Um, but and, and also, I mean, it's just a kind of, um, again, it's, it's the go along to get along. Let's all be just, you know, uh, you know the same team. Uh, let's all be generic Republicans kind of approach. Now, that said, I mean, you, you know, you, you pointed out even Donald Trump comes along uh, – and, uh, you know, sort of truckles to that in the end. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of political pressure. It really is something where uh, the party has uh, a lot of, um, you know, they'll come at you from all sides to get you to do it. So it's not like there's there's a, you know, it's not like I would be disappointed in a candidate who wound up uh, saying that he was simply going to vote for the Republican nominee. But you can see what the problem is. The problem is that it's 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 an opportunity for you to resist and to show your independence and to show why you're uniquely valuable. And if you don't take that opportunity you know, it winds up uh, undercutting you. Well, before we go on, let me take just a quick minute to thank a company that has been really great to the Tom Wood Show, and that's the Casper Mattress people. The other day, my daughter, Regina, very sheepishly told me that she can feel the springs coming through her mattress. And I said, well, I don't want you to live like that. Why didn't you tell me? For heaven's sake, the Casper Mattress people sponsor the show. So we ordered her a Casper mattress. And it, sure enough, does come in a how-do-they-do-that size box. And man, is this mattress comfortable. And that's because the experts at Casper have been making a sleep surface that cradles your what you might call natural geometry in all the right places. The original Casper mattress gives you these supportive memory foams, give you just the right amount of sink and bounce. 
Its breathable design helps you sleep cool, regulates your body temperature throughout the night, plus affordable prices, free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada, and you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com woods and using promo code woods at checkout. That's $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com woods and using promo code woods at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Do you think Rand could have competed with Trump if he had run differently? Or was it rather that the man and the moment had met and moreover, the message was the message of the moment and that really Rand, given the constraints of the positions he holds, really could not, no matter what fancy campaign strategy work he did, have made a a respectable showing? I tend to think that's right. I think the thing that, you know, only a radical, radical uh, kind of campaign, which which at the time I certainly would not have recommended to Rand, uh, would have had, you know, the remotest chance of uh, upending Donald Trump or creating a completely new movement, which probably would have, you know, wound up leaving the Republican Party. And that is, you know, uh, if, if Rand had taken the kinds of positions that his father had taken, if he had you know, uh, been really bold on something like the Iran deal, for example, and on, you know, sort of getting out of, uh, you know, various foreign commitments. Uh, if he had basically outflanked Donald Trump with a anti-establishment libertarian uh, message instead of an anti-establishment nationalist message as Trump had, um, I still think that probably would have lost, but it would have, um, you know, there would have been maybe a, a 2% chance that that could have uh, shaken things up in a really, really dynamic way. Instead, you know, I think Rand took a very realistic approach but a very realistic approach against someone who's as much of a game changer as Donald Trump was uh, turned out just to be ineffective. And we saw that with all the other candidates as well. And they all had, you know, uh, very well-paid consultants and they'd all spent years kind of cultivating these uh, positions for themselves as Mr. Conservative, you know, uh, Scott Walker. Uh, he was someone who was, you know, very well liked by, uh, you know, movement conservative types. Ted Cruz had obviously, you know, sort of owned himself very carefully to become, uh, you know, a, a kind of constitutionalist who was not necessarily a libertarian. And all of them fell short. Hurricane Donald swept through them all. And that's because Donald was, you know, um, something totally new and also something where, you know, just grassroots voters could look at Donald Trump. They could look at the way he behaved on stage, the way he talked about the media, the way he talked about the left. And they could say, this is a guy who's going to fight for us. And I think they looked at all the others and they said, you know what, these guys have their programs and they have their policies and advisors, but none of them have, you know, a sort of a a fight in their hearts. And, you know, I think when you when people feel like there's a a great urgency, then you're going to go with the fighter. You're not going to go with someone who's a technocrat. So what it boils down to is that what some people may have mistaken for a libertarian moment was really an anti-establishment moment that then got more or less taken over by, swept away by the Trump anti-establishment moment because he was perceived to be the most anti-establishment guy around. So what does this mean for libertarians today? Uh, Do they have any prospects or for them to have any prospects, what would they need to do in your opinion? Well, I think there are two signs of hope for the libertarians. On the one hand, there is this idea that, you know, the next generation in politics is going to be very different from what we've seen, uh, you know, up to now. So I think groups like Young Americans for Liberty, for example, uh, any number of other libertarian youth-focused uh, efforts, um, they're having an effect. They're electing people to state legislatures, and you know there will come a time when these people who've been elected to state legislatures are prepared to run for national office, and they might be very impressive, and they might you know stick to a very strong kind of libertarian um, 
program. Um, similarly, I mean, you know, maybe the country is going to move in a kind of culturally left libertarian direction as well. Uh, maybe millennials and uh, the generation behind them as well are going to be people who like the idea of entrepreneurship and like the idea of free markets, but who also, you know, tend to be kind of culturally uh, drifting towards, uh, you know, kind of left-wing identity politics or something. Um, you know, those things might happen. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, we have a political system that is fundamentally drained of legitimacy, and it's fundamentally drained of any connection with the public. And it's not just the elected offices. It's not just – I mean, if you look at polling, it's shocking what uh, the American people uh, – what their approval rating is when it comes to Congress. You know, Congress is meant to be uh, the branch of government that close, is closest to the people. Uh, but instead, you know, Congress routinely has, you know, single-digit or low-double-digit approval ratings from the public. That's a sign of a, a dramatic loss of legitimacy. And it's not just these formal institutions, however. This loss of legitimacy applies to the very class of people, you know, highly educated, uh, sort of technocratic in their approach, um, you know, living in cities for the most part. Um, this entire ruling class is seen as being not only illegitimate but even hostile to the interests of people who live in Iowa, for example. Um, maybe not the, uh, you know, ethanol uh, addicts out there, but, uh, but ordinary Iowans. Um, someone like Donald Trump was able to come along and crystallize that. He was able to say, look, there is an entire, you know, sort of system here that is against you. And I'm going to come and I'm going to disrupt that system. I'm going to do it on behalf of the voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, these middle American states that have been kicked around. Um, I think libertarians conceivably could also, uh, you know, kind of appeal to that sentiment, sentiment. But to do that, I think they have to, again, revisit Rothbard. They really have to reconnect with the idea of what it is that drives this anti-elitism and anti-establishment politics. And it may not you know, be a fundamentally libertarian uh, philosophy that drives that, but I think it's also not a fundamentally um, you know, any other kind of philosophy either. It really is just a, a sentiment, an awareness that uh, the people who run this country are generally not running it for the benefit of ordinary Americans. I've spoken to a lot of Tea Party groups and conservative groups, and I give them libertarianism, but I explain it to them in a way that their brains are ready to accept. And I, I, I don't, don't mean to make these people sound like aliens. I, I mean that would be true of any group that's unfamiliar with what I'm going to say. I know who they are. I've stood in their shoes before. I know the categories they use, the way they think, and I can explain what I believe in ways that get them on their feet cheering. So I'm still convinced that the right messenger can convey these things to them in ways that would be effective and that would resonate with them. The question is, who is that person going to be? Now, in 2020, it seems highly unlikely that anybody is seriously going to primary Trump. I mean, unless you're just grandstanding to try to build up your name recognition, but that doesn't seem like a good long-term political strategy for anybody. So, um, what, first of all, how do you see 2020? I mean, is it a, is it a, a, a certainty that Trump will run again? I think it's a certainty. There's a lot of talk in Washington, D.C. from people who, you know, may or may not have, you know, specialized knowledge. I wouldn't say inside knowledge exactly because I don't think there's any inside knowledge that really counts unless you're inside Donald Trump's head. And there's only one guy who's, who's inside Donald Trump's head, and that's Donald Trump. But no, there are a lot of people in D.C. who think that Donald Trump doesn't want to run again. 
Uh, and that just doesn't match with my observations at all. I think Donald Trump will definitely run again. Uh, and I think he's got a very, very good chance of re-election simply because I look at the Democratic field and I don't see anyone who looks to me as if uh, they're going to win Ohio back or Pennsylvania back or Michigan or Wisconsin back. Uh, it seems to me that the Democrats, you know, they're devoted to identity politics and they're devoted to being the party of anti-Trump. Um, and that's not good enough. I mean, I think people really want someone who's going to, you know, be seen as fighting on their side against um, a ruling class that is uh, contrary to their interests and uh, their values. Say a quick word about modern age. I think I've written a book review and an article for modern age over the years. This is the, well, I'll let you tell people what it is. I was about to take your all the, the life out of it. Here you go. Yeah, Modern Age is a uh, conservative quarterly, but it's conservative in a very uh, broad way, which uh, you know incorporates a lot of libertarianism and libertarian perspectives. And uh, so we've been delighted to feature your work in the past. Uh, Rothbard was also featured in the journal back when he was alive. And it's really a place that brings together sort of the top minds among conservatives and libertarians and various other sympathetic people um, to really delve deep into the theory and the history and the literature of um, economics, political philosophy, and literature as well. And um, philosophy, uh, which I think I've already said, but <laughs> I'll, I'll reemphasize the philosophy just because there's a lot of it. <laughs> okay. So the, the website uh, is uh, modernagejournal.com. The journal itself is published on a quarterly basis, uh, and uh, I very much, you know, I think uh, listeners to the Tom Woods show who want to have a kind of um, a straight-up shot of, you know, sort of serious, philosophical, thoughtful, conservative or libertarian um, writing will really enjoy the journal. So I very much, I, I think, you know, if people check it out, they'll find out it's something they might very well want to subscribe to. And um, and it's, it's really, I think... Um, a journal that's ahead of the curve in so many ways. Uh, and when it comes to talking about, uh, you know, the relationship between populism and conservatism or, or libertarianism and conservatism, uh, it's a journal which has always, you know, had the most interesting material. Again, Rothbard, you know, outlined some of his key idea, ideas in the journal. Uh, Frank Meyer, who was, you know, uh, whose, whose idea of fusionism, bringing together traditionalism and, conservat and uh, libertarianism, was actually yeah, a lot more philosophically nuanced than most people realize. It was not a cynical political coalition building trick. No, it was absolutely. Actually, it was, yeah, it was, it was an attempt to find, you know, a shared uh, Western tradition that both libertarians and conservatives could draw upon. And I actually think that um, could have very, you know, dramatic political implications uh, down the line if people were to rediscover what it was really all about. Yeah, and, and you know, these days it's very fashionable to dismiss that as just a dumb idea – but it wasn't a dumb idea. I read a lot of Frank Meyer and when I was in college, and uh, I thought he was really on to something. And I'll just just to make clear that what Dan is telling you is absolutely correct. When Rothbard's four volume History of Colonial America came out, Conceived in Liberty, every single volume was reviewed in modern age and reviewed extremely enthusiastically. So this is not, uh, you know, this is not going to be the kind of conservative publication that a lot of us roll our eyes at. I mean, this is uh, this is very, very much worth reading. And almost anybody who was anybody for all those years has written for it at one time or another. So modernagejournal.com. Dan, thanks so much for your time. I'm going to link at tomwoods.com slash 1196 to Modern Age and also to the article that we discussed today. Thanks again. Thanks, Tom. All right, folks, that is going to do it. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you all next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. 
Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.